Please note the following recording contains adult language and is not suitable for all listeners. So if you follow media at this time of the year, you'll be familiar with the phrase, the war on Christmas. Some people even turn it into the global war on Christmas. I'm skeptical that there is anything like a war on Christmas. What we see reflected in those terms is that America is becoming, and quickly, a much more religiously pluralistic nation than it was a decade ago, two decades ago, three decades ago. And sometimes the groups that have been used to being dominant when they see changes going on underfoot see that as an assault rather than just what it is, which is a change. And here's the irony about the war on Christmas, is that it doesn't exist right now, but it sure did exist a long time ago. And the people who pushed forward that war on Christmas, they were Christians. You might know them as the Puritans. In the Massachusetts Bay Colony, when the Puritans controlled that, both the states and the churches, it was actually outlawed that you could not celebrate Christmas. In 1659, I think a court handed down a ruling that if you were found to be celebrating Christmas, that you would have to pay a penalty of five shillings, which I have no idea how much that is right now, but it sounds like a lot back then. It was seen at the time that Christmas was unbiblical. That's the way the Puritans thought, that Christmas was unbiblical because there was no... Recording of the date, December 25th, in the Bible itself, it also was seen as a time of too much revelry and the overturning of conventional, normal, approved of behavior. It was a time of the year of too much foolishness. And honestly, if you read the popular history of the time, you actually see that a lot of the Christmas-like behavior, and maybe it's not so much different now, but it was very excessive back then, was simply this. It was drunken buffoonery. It was drunken buffoonery that got a crowd of people to gather outside of King's uh, Chapel or the fear of drunken buffoonery that got a group of Puritans to gather outside King's Chapel in 1701 when it was still an Anglican church, but would within a 100 years become a Unitarian church. Still the oldest Unitarian church in America, but that Puritanical mob gathered outside King's Chapel while the Anglicans were celebrating Christmas inside and they gathered there with fire and they rioted simply because they considered Christmas to be too much of a threat to the normal standards of society. And a lot of it was drunken buffoonery. And here's the thing. Drunken buffoonery has about as much to do with authentic spiritual maturity as, let's say, stepping on ants has to do with the practice of veterinary medicine. But there is a current, a strong current, a noble current, in many spiritual traditions of what is called holy fools or holy foolishness who exist to upturn the normal assumptions of conventional religious behavior so that people might enter into a deeper spiritual relationship with their lives, a more challenging one, but also a more fulfilling one. This is the primary difference between just plain old foolishness or buffoonery and the holy fool variety. When a holy fool When we're in their presence, we come to see, sometimes in very provocative ways and challenging ways, the limits of our own conventional thinking about what the nature of the religious life should be or what it should do for us. 
A holy fool is nonviolent, but a holy fool is provocative. Think of if you've ever heard, uh, what's the sound of one hand clapping? That's kind of the most famous Zen koan. And koans are a spiritual practice in which I've never really engaged seriously. But when we engage with them seriously over time, we bump up against the limits of our rational minds and can achieve something like a deeper, wider consciousness. In the Russian Orthodox Church, there's many traditions of holy fools, the most famous of whom is this. Now they call him St. Basil the Blessed. By the way, it's a lot easier to call a holy fool a saint after they're dead rather than when they're living. But St. Basil the Blessed, he would do things like go through cold Russian Moscow winters clothed only in his beard. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. My scruff. Well, don't worry. But even more provocatively, what he would do is he would approach the czar, Ivan the Terrible. I mean, we all get that. Ivan the Terrible, not a good guy, a fearsome guy, someone who perpetrated a lot of violence upon his people. And Basil would approach Ivan. And during the holy season of Lent in the Russian Orthodox Church, when one was not really supposed to eat meat at all, he would take a slab of raw meat and throw it. At Ivan the Terrible, the stories say. And Ivan was offended. I will not do this. I'm not going to break the laws of Lent. And Basil would say, you will observe the customs and the laws of Lent. And yet you continue to shed human blood with impunity. That's what a holy fool can do with unconventional behavior show the limits of religion that appears respectable but really isn't at all a holy fool can help us to get a deeper glimpse into our lives so hopefully today what i will say this is my intention will strike you as foolish you can be the judge of that the hope is that by engaging some of this unconventional behavior we can call ourselves to open our hearts wider. I'm going to encourage you to take a look at these two words behind me. These two words as kind of an uh, entryway to being practicing holy fools in this season of grace, gratitude, and gifts. Namaste and Dainu. Namaste, which is normally accompanied with a bow, as many of us know. Namaste, which is the recognition, the divine in me, recognizes the divine in you. And Dainu, which might be a little less familiar to you, a Dainu which is said, and I grew up saying, during the Passover seders. Dainu is a resuscitation over and over and over again of the ancient Israelites recounting their story of liberation from bondage in Egypt. It would have been enough, Dainu, just to be freed from bondage. But then we were fed in the desert, Dainu. Then we were given the Holy Land, Dainu. All these phrases saying it would have been enough. And yet there was more. Namaste and Dainu practiced in serious ways, not just in cliched ways, but practiced truly in our daily lives are beautiful ways for us to engage the meaning of this season and guided by the wisdom of this image. Talking heads, stop making sense. 
Sometimes our lives are so unhappy to us because we want our lives to make sense. And yet when we can move into that place of nonsense, of holy foolishness, our lives will actually have more meaning. This is a time of the year in which it's very, very dark. I mean, it is a gloomy freaking day out right now. And maybe we arrive back home and it's dark and we get up when it's dark. And if we can't fight the seasons and we can't fight the weather, well, then we have another choice. If it's going to be dark in this December, we might as well dream a little bit more. So my hope today is that by engaging some of our capacity for holy foolishness of seeing our lives in unconventional ways, that we may dream the dark into the life and into the life that we want. Now, that first word, namaste, it is said, sadly, almost as a cliche, almost as a kind of new age buzzword, almost as a namaste, I'll see you later. You know, that's why I actually like to bow when I do this, because bowing, I feel it in my back. When I'm actually bowing to another person's divinity, I feel it in my body, and that makes it more real for me. And so when I was putting this message together this week, Namaste and Dayenu, I came across this thing on Facebook, which I absolutely loved. I'm in a really good place spiritually, so please fuck off. Namaste. Honestly, sometimes that's the way people use it. Passive aggressively. A number of years ago, some of you know this story, I was at the Body Mind Spirit Expo where we used to have space when Wellsprings was getting up and getting going. And I met some people I really liked there. I met some people who, you know, had some things I could learn and some things we could get to know each other better with. And some people I also met who were smelling really nothing more than spiritual snake oil and trying to make a lot of money off of it. The booth next to ours in the exhibit hall had a guy who was uh, selling, as best as I could divine, uh, shoe inserts. (laughs) Shoe inserts that, I don't know, if you go to the mall, you could maybe get for, I don't know, five bucks or three bucks or something. But these shoe inserts were to align your spine and to align your heart and to align your soul and to align your entire energetic system. They look like pieces of foam rubber to me, but maybe I'm just ignorant. But I got to tell you, my skepticism with this guy was borne out the next morning because the next morning when the exhibitors were gathering and we were getting together and the people to come to the exhibit, the actual participants, they weren't there yet. His credit card machine went out. And I heard him on the line talking to the person or the people who put his charges through. You motherfuckers. If you don't get this goddamn thing fixed fucking right now, you're goddamn costing me money. Don't you shits realize on and on and on and on. Namaste. (laughs) It was kind of like that. This is the problem when we don't engage the holy foolishness of namaste, when it's just a cliche, when we say dayenu just as a song about something that happened long ago or far away. And it's not about our own lives. It's not about that capacity to truly bow and open our hearts simultaneously to us being enough and their being enough. In this holiday season, one of The biggest challenge is is exactly to do this, to know that we are enough, to know that we have enough, to give our gifts and receive them in a spirit of true grace and not just kind of the wanting mind, the gimme, gimme, gimme. Now, 
this is also a big movie time of the year, and I don't get to go to the movies very much in December in the same way I do over the summertime. And one of the most well-known movies right now is Lincoln that I imagine a number of you have seen. And there's a quote I read this past week from Lincoln that gets the heart of almost a kind of holy foolishness. I think that's why people revere Lincoln so much, is that as much as he was a president who helped to keep the union together, he also had tremendous insight into the human condition. And it is said that he wrote once, I do not like that man. I do not like that man. I must get to know him better. What a different expression and feeling from especially our current political zeitgeist, spirit of the times, if you will, in which it is, I do not like that man or that woman. I do not like that person. I must think the worst of them. It is not enough that we disagree with their policies. They must, in fact, be bad people. Sometimes there's passive-aggressive ways of doing this, of saying, I do not like that person, but we won't quite deal with the conflict. I was around a bunch of Christian pastors this past week, and um, they were talking about the passive-aggressive ways that people dealt with conflict in their own traditions. And they could really see that someone had a profound conflict with them, but they didn't want to deal with it because the conversation always would end I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to pray for you. Namaste. Fuck you. <laughs> I mean, because yeah, that's, that's the passive-aggressive part in this stuff, you know? Well, we can't deal openly with the fact that it's not all sweetness and light in here, and it's not all sweetness and light out there. But we want to paper over the difficulty in our life. We're actually not practicing not, uh, namaste or dayenu at all. We're just engaging in superficial cliches. I remember a number of years ago when I saw this bumper sticker that at the time I thought was hysterical and now I think is really, really stupid. It reads this way. Jesus loves you. Everyone else thinks you're an asshole. And, and very often it's, it's used by people who are, who are sometimes religious progressives, <laughs> you know, to kind of make fun of evangelicals. But here's the thing. This is really the thing. To not, like, get too caught up in the theology about Jesus and the teachings about Jesus, but to actually practice the religion of Jesus, opening our hearts, reaching out to those who are despised by the community, the heart of Jesus' universalist ministry, Here's the truth. Jesus loved the assholes of his time. Profoundly, powerfully, in a way that changed himself and changed them and changed lives. The sinners, the tax collectors, the whores, the Samaritans, the people who were despised in that community. I have a friend who had a good practice of namaste and dayenu with people he was in conflict with over the years. And eventually, actually, he got around to uh, solving, you know, healing this conflict with the person, but it was protracted. It lasted a long time, and this person drove, uh, drove him up the wall. And his version of namaste and dayenu with this person who he thought was a complete jerk was, at least when you breathe out, you're feeding the green stuff. And he meant it, though. <laughs> 
At least you're part of the whole. At least you're contributing something. And I believe that this attitude was a primary way that eventually he found his way back into a more harmonious relationship with the person with whom he had conflict. Because he never forgot in a non-superficial way that one, he thought this person was a jerk, and two, this person had just as much right to be on this earth as he did. But here's the really great thing, what I, what I love about Jesus loves you and everyone else thinks you're an asshole, and I find this personally saving, is that sometimes I'm the asshole. <laughs> sometimes we're <laughs> the assholes. <laughs> I don't know, maybe you think you're pure and decent and never do a thing wrong and never say anything bad about anyone, and please then come teach me, because I haven't found a way to do that yet, and I'm not even sure that that's really why I want to get anyway. I saw a perfect example of this yesterday. I was in the PetSmart uh, buying some hay for a pet rabbit. And I saw a long line of people almost out the door holding the pets in their arms. And I, I, I figured there, there couldn't be um, this much of a demand for pet toenail clipping. And it wasn't. It was people lined up to get their picture with themselves and their pets with Santa Claus. And... Like, I'm the target audience for this. We love our pets our insane amount and spend too much money on them, and we don't have kids. They were probably thinking of us, double income, no kids, with pets. You guys are going to love to have your pictures taken with Santa Claus, right, and your pets. No, 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 no. I have no interest to do this. And I was going to get on Facebook right away and put something snarky in there about uh, you know, people spending their money and they should be spending it more wisely. And then I paused, fortunately. And looked at the happiness and the joy of the faces with the people holding their pets, waiting to have them taking the pictures with Santa Claus. And I thought, what kind of a crud am I that I want to make fun of this? And by the way, I missed the better joke because the better joke was this. And I should have put it on Facebook. The better joke is this. Who gets peed on more, the mall Santa Claus or the PetSmart Santa Claus? That is the better joke because it doesn't demean anyone and it's funnier. That's the holy foolishness joke that allows me to still say namaste and die anew to an action that I don't quite get. This is the great thing about recognizing that sometimes, yes, we can be the assholes and I can be the asshole. Is that by learning to see it and knowing that my whole self-image is not going to crumble... I can still keep in touch with that inner radiance, that basic belovedness that is part of my life and everyone else's life. The goal of the spiritual life is not to get to the point saying, I have no ego. I've transcended all that. Maybe the only truly enlightened get there, but I have never met anyone like that. The real fruits of spiritual practice is that we can learn to see, I have an ego and I can be a jerk sometimes. And by learning not to resist that fact... There's all that space at the same time to say namaste and die anew to our own lives. That we can leave room for these heart-opening exercises that can get us to relate to our lives with more grace and with more gratitude and to leave room to do that heart work. 
This matters a lot in how we go about our lives. It matters a lot about how it colors our perspective. There's an ancient Hindu story about two kingdoms that were both in devotion to Lord Krishna. And Lord Krishna one day came down from the heavenly realm and got in touch with one king of the one realm. And that king was known to be kind of a malicious person, a mean-spirited person. And so Krishna said to that king, I want you to find me one person in your realm who is truly good. And the king went and talked to just about everyone that the king could within his realm. Talked to the high castes and the low castes, talked to the farmers and the priests, and went back to report to Lord Krishna and said this, I saw many people doing good deeds, but when I really got to get to know them, what I saw is that at base, everyone was doing it for selfish reasons. So I can report back to you, I could not find one truly good person. Lord Krishna went to the second realm, governed by a queen who was known to be of good heart and kind. And Krishna said to this queen, I want you to go find me one truly evil person in your realm. And she did the same thing as the king did. Talked to everyone she could in the realm, the high caste, the low caste, the priests, the farmers, and reported back to Krishna saying... I could not find one truly evil person. I saw people doing misdeeds. I saw people causing harm. And when I stopped to get to know them, I found that no one was motivated by a true sense of absolute malice, that they were misguided, that maybe they were hurt or injured and so caused others harm. But I could not find one Truly evil person. It's the same lesson the queen knew as Lincoln did. I do not like that person. I must get to know them better. This is where namaste and dayenu are challenging practices. That we are enough. That as universalists, the divine is either in everyone and everywhere, or it is in no one and nowhere. To know that there is enough goodness, not perfect, but enough. Looking at our lives in this way, we can practice an appreciative inquiry. Sometimes it's even just at the level of my friend and said, at least you're breathing out and feeding the flowers. And that's going to have to be good enough for now. See, if we cannot allow ourselves to look with an appreciative eyes and an open heart upon our lives, we will find ourselves so regularly just dissatisfied, just terminally dissatisfied with everything we have and everything we are because we will be disconnected looking for the flaw. We will be playing a, an adult and unhappy version of this that you might remember. Where's Waldo? Now, the thing is, can any of you see Waldo from here? Can you see the hat? I don't know. Well, maybe we're much more expert at doing the adult version of it, which is looking for the one flaw that screws up everything else. At these moments, when I find myself deeply in touch with my own impatience and lack of acceptance with the perfect that becomes the enemy of the very much and still very present good, I remind myself of the words of the great Zen Jew, Leonard Cohen. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. If we can accept, just basically accept 
that probably our lives will never be under the absolute ideal conditions. And yes, I know we have perfect days and perfect moments. And if we are blessed to live beyond those perfect days and blessed beyond those perfect moments, you know what will happen? It will change. (laughs) And we'll go back to our lives being non-ideal. If we wait for the moment of the ideal and the perfect, we will never accept our lives and we will never truly be able to bow namaste and open the heart, die anew. If we can understand that there really aren't the ideal ideal conditions and we can still be deeply happy and we can still appreciate this is the great irony, the great pivot point, then our life can change. Sometimes it comes about, yes, by being a holy fool. It comes about by recognizing as Frank articulated, I want to dance, but there's something stopping me. Be a freaking holy fool. You're in a church. You're in a spiritual community. This is a place for holy foolishness, especially at this season. I think this is another one of the reasons that why Lincoln has continued to have such a profound and powerful hold on on Americans. is not just that he died for the cause of keeping the union together, but that he existed in a time... And held up, and imperfectly, he was far from perfect in this way, but he existed and died for ideals that many millions of people dismissed as utter foolishness. I mean, think about it. It was still 70 years after Lincoln's time that women would not have the right to vote until then. Even after slavery ended, there was a 100 years of American apartheid. And there's no other word for it. It was our own American apartheid system. Ideas that now maybe we still practice imperfectly, but now many of us take for granted, those were dismissed as crazy, foolish ideas about equality and who belongs and who counts. I think so much of the great progress that comes about in this life happens because of the crazy, beautiful fools who do not wait for the ideal conditions to start to make change. They have a vision of how life can be more namaste and more dayenu, and they follow it. And we can do this in small ways, very small ways, ways that we might easily or with objects that we might easily dismiss. Some of you know that Thich Nhat Hanh has an amazing little exercise in which he says the, 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 the presence of the whole universe is proven by this one piece of paper. And likely we'll look on it and say, It's just a freaking piece of paper. But if we can look on this piece of paper with the sense of bowing to the presence that is within it, you can see about the 25 steps that Thich Nhat Hanh takes and says, in here is sunlight, and in here is the logger, in here are the people at the recycling plant, and here was the sunshine, and here were all these things. And so this piece of paper proves the entire presence of the universe. Maybe kids get this. Sometimes adults really rebel against this. To see in the presence of the one small thing, the presence of the whole. I mean, this I found to, I find to be a very challenging practice at this time of the year when there's so much consumerism, when I know that I will be buying products for people I care about, particularly kids, that I cannot say with clarity and full, easy conscience that they were made fairly or justly. I mean, just look what I'm carrying around in my pocket. I don't don't know that this was made absolutely fairly or justly. Chances are it wasn't. 
Now, if there are any of you have, who have completely pulled yourself off of the grid that do not engage in the modern consumer, consumerist capitalist society, that's incredible. Maybe someday I'll be able to join you there. But probably most of us have not. And so learning to exist in this place, this challenge of recognizing that our purchasing may always not match up with our ideals is not a cause for condemnation or moralism. I think Brett Denen, who sings a song called Blessed, which he talks about holding darkness and light together and not casting them apart from each other. A song called Ain't No Reason, where he says, Slavery stitched into the fabric of my clothes, chaos and commotion wherever I go, but love I try to follow. What a great foolish sentiment. <laughs> Life is imperfect, and yet he still tries to follow love. This is the way that most of us change. It is by learning to live into, not escaping, the current tension and stresses and paradox of our lives. By learning to live into these tensions, we will see over time what may shift and that our behaviors will change. This is a practice of Einstein's amazingly insightful. I mean, if we want to practice enlightenment, Get what Einstein's saying here when he wrote that the same consciousness that created a problem cannot be the consciousness that solves the problem. We grow into that place of that expanded consciousness, that deeper heart, by learning to say namaste when it is not easy and by learning to say nu, it is enough when we feel we do not have enough or we are not enough. Holy fools always speak some combination of namaste and dayenu, recognizing our inherent divinity and trusting that through gratitude, our lives can be made enough. I think of one of my favorite holy fools this time of the year, Reverend Billy and the Church of Stop Shopping. Look him up on YouTube if you get a chance. And he is a mixture of street revival preacher and performance artist, and you can never tell which one is which, and that's awesome. That's how you can tell a holy fool. You cannot tell which is artificial and which is real, but you keep watching. He says his ministry is to put the odd back into God. <laughs> you see, when we can see, that, that, that's the problem for me why, with that word God that too many people use, is that's kind of shorthand for my life will just turn out the way I want it to. Rather than saying, no, life is huge and big and we can enter it in a way that will change us. <laughs> That's the odd back in God. That is a theology worth having. There's a wildness and a preciousness and a lovingness in that way of being alive. I am so grateful for the modern holy fools who call us into troubled waters, who call us into troubled consciousnesses because they teach us to keep on growing because our lives are not settled. Take a look at Monty Python maybe in the next few weeks. There's some great sacred holy fools there. They said some of the best stuff about religion that's been said in the last 30 or 40 years. Watch an episode of Stephen Colbert. <laughs> Stephen Colbert who had the amazing insight that the only way to satirize a hateful, arrogant truthiness, I'm going to say it even if I know it's not true, kind of political culture because it's going to score me points. The only way to satirize that kind of political culture, which is so freaking dysfunctional and so awful for all of us, the only way to satirize it is to become it. 
and to show it back to ourselves. What a ludicrous way to live. So today, may you allow yourself to practice namaste and dayenu. By taking the risk of appearing foolish. (laughs) By taking the risk of dancing. When you're an uptight guy. Sorry, Frank, I love you. (laughs) But you're the only one wearing a sport coat here today. So enough said. (laughs) I love you, I truly do. It means being a fool when... Jerky thoughts come up, such as I saw yesterday, and admitting it. It means being a fool who can open our hearts again and again and again. And say there is enough, and we are enough. And can bow in a way that we feel it, almost, and maybe it hurts the back a little bit. But a way that we can feel it in the body. Namaste. I recognize the divine in you. I recognize the divine in you. I recognize the divine in you. Because it's too easy to say as a cliche. But to feel it. And then to lift up the back and feel foolish because you're 42 years old and your back hurts. But that's all right. It's worth being a fool. May we accept the sacred and holy foolishness of this season. Not the buffoonery. But the sacred and holy opportunity to keep our lives open and fresh and new and also hopefully funny. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Sacred source, understood in the heart with words such as namaste and dainu. May we allow ourselves the risk, the heart-opening, soul-divulging space of living and loving in unconventional ways. Ways that disclose a newer wisdom and a kinder way and a deeper insight into this ongoing, complex, pained, beautiful state of creation which is active right now and not far away and finished. I ask a holy blessing upon all of us this day. May we love enough to be foolish. Amen.